السلام علیکم و رحمۃ اللہ وبرکاتہ پیس اینڈ بلیسنگ فلا بی اپون یو آل ویلکم ونس اگین ہیئر ان ڈرائیو ٹائم شو یو لسننگ ٹو انیک الرحمٰن اینڈ آئی ہیو جوائن بائی اندر کو پرزینٹر ہیئر ان دا اسٹوڈیو عثمان علی انجم السلام علیکم پیس بی اپون یو السلام علیکم پیس بی اپون یو آل ٹو آئی ہوپ یو ڈنگ ویل دا ویدر از بٹ چلی از Today, uh, as we discuss two topics in uh, one show, today we'll be having two hours show. In first hour, we'll be discussing one uh, topic and in second hour, we'll be discussing a different uh, topic. For, uh, we'll be having some guests today who will be discussing on these topics and uh, you can call us on 0208-687-7878. And you can tweet at Voice of Islam UK and visit our website www.voiceofislam.co.uk. So, Usman, uh, what's our topic for the first hour? So, today, the first hour, we're going to be working on or, you know, discussing yeah. vegan diets and do they actually make us weaker? There are studies that do support a vegan diet, um, but there are also studies that promote the intake of meat and link it mm-hmm. to stronger bones and meat. Uh, uh, consumption is actually according to some studies has actually shown benefits as opposed to not so there are studies for both sides um, even though they say that uh, if they're having lentils or other things they have all kind of nutrition but I think uh, as we are discussing that vegan diets do they make you weaker or not we will be you know understanding and uh, getting some more knowledge or in depth that does what happens actually of course. when you become a vegan i mean nowadays veganism is is on a rise and there's a lot of factors for it some yeah. are ethical some are moral um just for the for you guys and for everyone listening you know our opinion is that you know god almighty has stated that you know we should have a balanced diet hmm. um one should eat meat and vegetables so it's not as if we're saying only eat meat or you know we're against eating vegetables uh if some people don't like to eat meat they don't have to it's not like imposed it's, necess- it's, a, it's like it's so necessary to eat it right of course yeah it's not a religious necessity for us in islam um it's it's a you know if they think that it's a crime to slaughter animals yeah. uh, then in this i mean even if you breathe even then uh, microorganisms are found in water for example and when you take them into your stomach they die as well um there are also many microorganisms circling in the air as i was saying so even those they die when we inhale them um if that's an act of cruelty then in the same way meat consumption would be act of cruelty as well um and also even with the you know the the farming of vegetables there are a lot of uh, insects which die as well and yeah. um if we were to look at it from that side mm. there's loss of life in both ways again it's everyone sometimes we don't choice. see them that's why we think uh, you know people things are not dying for us but uh, as 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 usman mentioned yesterday show we'll be discussing uh, you know whether the vegan diet is sustainable uh, possible health impact and the importance of balanced diet and physical health and islam you know actually emphasizes the importance of eating healthy and uh, the, the 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 effect that it has on your physical and spiritual health the promised messiah on whom be peace Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad uh, has said in his book that philosophy of teaching of Islam is one of his book where he says that it should be understood that according to the Holy Quran the natural state of man is intimately related to his moral and spiritual states so much so that even his eating and drinking habits affects his moral and spiritual states that is why the Holy Quran emphasizes the physical cleanliness and physical moderation for prayers inner cleanliness and devotions 
After careful consideration, one concludes that this is the true philosophy and the physical organs have great effect on the soul. And I think uh, as the, uh, the, the his, his Holiness has mentioned, the promised Messiah on whom be peace has mentioned, that anything we're eating, it has an impact on our soul and our spirituality. One of the things, you know, on, in this regard, one of the things which is um, not or is prohibited in Islam is to have, you know, to, to have uh, swine or uh, to, to have that, uh, uh, you know, flesh of uh, swine. Um, and what's the reason of it? What do, you, what do you think? Because I would like you to answer this if you can. Yeah, so it's just, you know, it has adverse effects. And also we believe that, you know, we've been taught that whatever we eat, yeah um it impacts us so in an essence you are what you eat in a way so if we're to eat swine the um it's an animal which isn't really known for being that clean hmm. um it's known for you know adverse health effects bad habits as well yes of course so we for that reason you know god almighty has told us not to eat that animal hmm. but then again there are so many that we can eat you know we, we yes. bring up chicken we bring up lamb Bring up sheep, whatever you want to have. It. Yeah, I think we are discussing veganism. Let's let's discuss more about it. What is uh, veganism? You know, veganism, of course, is a lifestyle and you know dietary choice that abstains from the consumption of animal products and rejects, you know, the, the use of animals for any purpose, including food and you know clothing, cosmetics, and entertainment. And vegans exclusively consume plant-based foods, including fruits, vegetables grains and nuts and seeds so you know they avoid yeah, all uh, animal uh, drive products such as meat you know dairy eggs and honey so as we we're discussing today the topic of course you know this this discussion is something which can go towards that whether w- why we eat meat or why we do not eat meat oh, no, of, of course yeah, yeah one 100%. thing is we're discussing here is W- w- do you really get weaker or not? Okay, of course, yeah. So again, that's one thing I want to, you know, just put out there. We're not promoting or telling you to change your way. Exactly. Uh, both ways are fine. We're just here to say, uh, I just gave our opinion on it. Yeah. And um, I mean, just to be, you know, fair, I'm going to go on to why people do actually uh, go vegan. So, uh, I mean, according to statistics, half of the UK population are cutting down on meat with two with, with like 3% of the British public identifying as vegan, which equates to around 2 million people, a number which is growing rapidly. Of those vegans, 63% have adopted the lifestyle in the past five years. However, 81% of them were previously vegetarian. So many have been avoiding meat for longer than this. There are many reasons to why someone could go vegan. Usually it's because of ethical re- uh, concerns, um, environmental awareness, um, so, you know, we can explore some of them as well. Um, just, and again, we're not saying you should go to one way or the other. Um, we're just discussing the benefits and the stats. Yes, indeed. Uh, now we're going to go to our, uh, you know, first guest uh, uh, who is with us, Hazel Flight, uh, who is program lead for the Nutrition and Health Program at Shield University. Uh, Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and thank you very much for joining us today. Are you with us, Hazel? Yes, yes. Good afternoon. Hi. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining today. Uh, Hazel, uh, you know, from the nutritionist point of view, what are the pros and cons of a vegan diet? Okay, yes. Um, it's an interesting one, I think. But um, I think a lot of people are promoting the vegan diet now, and I have yeah. 
nothing against it. However, because it does actually, it provides a lot of health benefits. Um, it's got it's a diet that's rich in nutrients such as um, fiber, vitamins, antioxidants, etc. Um, there is evidence that it can lower heart disease, high blood pressure, certain cancers. Um, it's also good for weight management um, and can have an environmental impact. However, I think there is a, quite a serious concern in relation to people taking on the vegan diet that actually don't know how to do it because there is quite a risk of a nutrient deficiency if people don't know how to actually eat a vegan diet um, knowledgeably. So things like um, vitamin B12, iron, calcium, omega-3 fatty acids, which are commonly found in animal products, can be lacking in a vegan diet. Um, so yeah, so I think, and, and it can be a little bit, so it can actually have a potential for imbalance as well. So, and also um, people who might have irritable bowel syndrome, if they change the diet suddenly, although it can sometimes see an improvement, it can also make it a little bit worse initially because of the high fiber content. Uh, true. Uh, you know, are there any specific challenges or common deficiencies you encounter uh, in individuals, you know, practicing veganism? Yeah, I think one of the most common ones is vitamin B12, which if somebody is following a vegan diet, they actually need to take a supplement because you can only actually find that in animal mm-hmm. products. Um, there's also an issue with iron, um, so a deficiency in iron, because although we can get it from plant-based um, foods, it's not actually as easily absorbed by the body as it is from animal sources. Um so one way that you can actually combat that is actually having some vitamin C rich foods alongside it, which can actually help help the absorption of the iron. So and then there's other things such as calcium, uh, omega-3 fatty acids, protein again, zinc and iodine, all which are quite common um, deficiencies at the moment in the UK especially. Uh, thanks for that. Um... In terms of, you know, the nutrients uh, for people that follow a vegan diet, how can they ensure that the adequate intake of these nutrients is consumed? I know you've mentioned iron and vitamins. Yes, I think I think the first thing to do, which is what I always promote, is that people need to educate themselves. So if they're going to follow a vegan diet, you need to actually learn about the plant-based sources for the key nutrients. Um Another aspect is actually diversifying your plate, your, what you're eating. So consuming a variety of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts and seeds, etc. That's really important. Um, as I said before, taking a vitamin B12 supplement, um, making sure that you get calcium sources from maybe fortified plant milks, tofu, leafy greens, etc., um in relation to i think the omega-3 was the other key one um so that's sort of eating flax seeds chia seeds algae-based supplements in the diet and maybe taking an actual supplement if you're not eating those um so yeah and i think it's just monitoring those nutrient Mm. levels as well so maybe checking them regularly and going for help if you need it
And as you've seen rapidly in the last couple of years, especially, I would say that veganism is on the rise. What are some of the misconceptions people may have um, uh, come that you may have come across with people adopting the vegan diet? Right. Yeah. I mean, it is on the rise, and I think it's being sort of encouraged quite a lot. And as I said, I'm not against it at all. Um, I fully appreciate that people want to change that, but I do think what people forget is there's a lot of plant-based foods now in supermarkets, which are fine. However, these are processed foods and processed foods are not good for the environment, which is one of the reasons people become vegans sometimes or often. Um, and also they're not absorbed, so they can actually do you more harm as well. Um, I think not getting enough protein is, is one of the dangers as well neglecting some of the key nutrients um and i think some people assume that vegan's healthy which it can be if it's done correctly as i've said before i, I always go back to sort of that education knowledge about what people are doing um but i certainly think going back to actually cooking yourself not using processed foods um using sort of natural products is really key and I've seen quite a few have actually had colleagues that have become vegans or vegetarians even and have actually had to go back onto meat because it's actually making them unwell. So I think it's it's really key that people think about it and, you know, seek advice before they actually take it on. And as you've mentioned, you know, a lot of it is processed. Do you think it's actually a sustainable way of living, a sustainable diet in the long run? It can be with proper planning. Um, it can provide all the necessary nutrients that people need. Um, it's obviously associated with a lot of health benefits. Um, it can support weight management as well. We do say sort of obviously the reduced environmental impact. Um, some of that is towards greenhouse gases. And I think, again, one of the key things there is a lot of the animals, because they are now pro they're, they're fed natural products that is what is causing some of the problem um if you go back to the grass-fed to the natural way of living then that's important obviously some people do it for ethical considerations and that's that's fine as well um but i think it's just important to remember that not all vegan diets are automatically sustainable um and a diet that consists mainly of highly processed vegan foods may not be as environmentally friendly or nutritionally balanced. So I think the emphasis needs to be on whole plant-based foods that sort of link to both personal health and environmental sustainability if you're going to actually follow it. Well, thank you very much. It was an honour uh, for us and a pleasure that you came and you took your time out and you know spoke on veganism. Okay, that's fine. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That was Hazel Fly, the program lead for the Nutrition and Health Program, Edge Hill University, discussing veganism and its impacts uh, on not just the body, but also the environment and steps that can be taken and measures that should be looked at. Yeah, and she has mentioned, I think, uh, all the things, even though, uh, you know, uh, they're having plant-based uh, food, but there are some, um, you know, nutrition which you have to take, you know, some kind of uh, supplements for that. And it's something, you know, which tells that God has made that naturally, or which is particularly in, in the, you know, in, in, in the meat, which you probably need to eat. 
And I think the re- the topic which comes up, uh, if we want to discuss veganism, whether how cruel is it to, to slaughter an animal, and what has been done to produce, you know, plant-based food. So again, you know, we rather than going in that discussion, I think it's going to be very long, but we will keep discussing right now the topic we, which we have today. That is it, uh, you know, the vegan diet is make make you weaker, or is it something? which is uh, an absolute normal. I mean, again, um, there are reasons why people go into the, uh, the vegan diet. Yeah. Um, and one of them is, is health and well-being. So veganism is associated with some health benefits, including a reduced risk of certain chronic diseases, uh, improved heart health and weight management. However, a well-balanced uh, vegan diet is essential to ensure all nutri- nutritional needs are met. And in terms of um, other reasons why people would actually go into veganism as well, apart from the actual um, effect on the body Mm -hmm. um, and also the environmental uh, awareness is another reason. For example, veganism is often often motivated by environmental concerns. You know, people would adopt a vegan diet in their view to reduce the carbon footprint uh, as animal agriculture is a significant contributor to the greenhouse gas emissions and deforestation as well. Um, yeah, on top of that, I think there's ethical considerations as well, which people have. F- f- again, if you want to shed some light on the ethical considerations, I think... Yes, you know, many vegans choose uh, this lifestyle out of uh, you know ethical concerns for animals. And, and and they believe that in in the inherent value and rights of all sentient beings and reject the exploitation and harm of animals for human benefits and you know the in one of the thing is animal rights and you know uh, and people are quite active on this and uh, you know as animal rights ac- activism and many vegans actively engage in animals' rights activism such as you know advocating for the humane uh, treatment of animals. Uh, supporting animal rescue organizations and promoting cruelty-free products, and uh, vegans use and promote you know products that are not uh, derived from animals, which includes vegan cost you know co- cosmetics, clothing, and household items. And one other thing you know in this regard, we see that especially in the leather, there's quite a lot of discussion to not make a leather, or leather shoes or bags or coat or you know the car seats. Uh, shouldn't be made out of leather, and many companies have moved using or they've stopped using the the, the animal leather and moved there. So uh, some they are do following it, but some they are still using mm. uh, you know th- th- that kind of leather which comes out of uh, you know the, the skin of animals. And I think you've hit the nail on the head here. I think one of the main reasons I think is is for the animals uh, and for the cruelty they have to face. Um, it's it's a real concern. Uh, and not just as a for veganism, but also for others. I think, especially as Muslims, we, we we should look after our animals as well. And there is a way of doing it where they should feel less pain or no pain, and there should be steps taken. I mean, nowadays there's confinement, so many factories are uh, employ intensive confinement systems that restrict the movement of animals, preventing them from expressing natural behaviors. Again, this can lead to stress, health issues, and decreased welfare. And again, then they use use of uh, you know the use of uh, hormones and antibiotics. The gro- uh, the use of growth promoting hormones and antibiotics can be harmful to animals and can contribute to the development of antibiotic resistant bacteria, posing risks to all humans' health as well. 
So it's not just damaging the animals, but rather, as I said, what you eat will have an impact on you. So it's actually going to impact us as humans as well. So it may just be for the animals' welfare, but also for our welfare. That's also one aspect of it. Yeah, we were much right. Uh, please uh, join us after a small uh, break. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمدا Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Welcome back, Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Um, apologies for the technical difficulty there. Uh, I was talking about, you know, why people would uh, promote veganism or why mm. they'd go into that, and I was just mentioning how there are aspects where it can be looked at for cruelty to animals and also the impact on the human body itself due to the treatment of the animals as a direct consequence. Uh, another thing is, for example, the inhumane slaughter practices. Improper and inhumane slaughter methods can result in unnecessary suffering and pain for livestock animals. Yes, uh, you're very much right. Now uh, we're going to go to our uh, next guest, Todd Bradbury, uh, who is a campaign manager at Animal Aid. Animal Aid is an animal protection group which campaigns on various issues relating to animal cruelty and promotes a cruelty-free lifestyle. Uh, thank you very much, Todd, for joining us today. Peace be upon you, and thank you much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you. Uh, to start off, uh, you know, can you please provide uh, an overview how Animals Aid Veganism campaign and you know its primary objectives, and how did this campaign come you know come about? Yeah, so Animal Aid, we've been about for well over forty years now, um, and we've always campaigned. We started off campaigning on things like uh, issues relating to animal testing. And then our campaigns branched off into other aspects of animal cruelty. So we, the reason we promote veganism is because it is the single biggest way an individual can reduce their impact on other animals. The single biggest way that an individual can help reduce animal suffering in the world. So that's basically our primary objective is to get people to think about the choices they make and hopefully make more compassionate choices when it comes to their food and other aspects of their life. And how has the general response been from the public? Well, I think the fact we're speaking about it on this radio station shows that, you know, veganism has been, uh, you know, has seen some sort of a, a bit of an explosion over the last, last few years. Um, we have seen many people going vegan. The, the latest statistics suggest about 3% of the UK population identifies vegan. Yeah. And, you know, you, can, you can't walk into a supermarket or any other shop without seeing vegan options everywhere. So, I mean, we've helped many people go vegan and help reduce their animal product consumption so you know things don't happen overnight but we've seen such a, a big increase in interest when it comes to vegan living 
And again, with the spread of everything, there's also always going to be positive and negative um, reactions. So what are some of the criticisms or concerns which have been raised? And uh, how would you basically deal with those and promote a, a well-balanced plant-based diet? Sure. So um, every major dietetic association in the world, including the British, British Dietetic Association, the American Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, all agree that a well-balanced um, plant-based diet, vegan diet, is suitable for all ages, provides all the nutrients we need. Um, so uh, at Animal Aid, we have a campaign called Healthy Vegan, which, as the name suggests, uh, helps people be vegan and also be healthy because we understand that it's easy for someone like me, who's been vegan for over 15 years now, to say, yeah, being vegan is easy and it's easy to eat a balanced diet. But if you're changing your entire lifestyle, your entire way of eating, yeah, it can be a bit difficult. So we work, we um, produce some materials with uh, plant-based uh, dietitians, nutritionists, plant-based health professionals, and produce information on how to be vegan whilst also being healthy and making sure you're getting all the nutrients your body needs. Because we don't need meat, we need protein. We don't need dairy, we need calcium. And all of these things can come from a plant-based diet. Of course. And, you know, some people would argue that there are humane ways to raise and slaughter animals. How does the campaign sort of respond to those discussions about animal welfare standards in our agriculture? Sure. So Animal Aid, we've investigated farms and slaughterhouses throughout the UK over our 40 odd years of existence. We've been to small family run farms. We've been to massive industrial farms. We've been to establishments that are so-called high welfare. We've been to all sorts of these places, and every time we go there, we find abuse and neglect to be commonplace. we found in so-called high-welfare slaughterhouses, for example, and I won't go into too much graphic detail, but we found animals being burnt with cigarettes, having their throats hacked out with blunt knives, all sorts of horrific things. So I, I'm yet to see an example of a humane way to slaughter an animal who simply doesn't want to die, has lived a life of suffering and exploitation. So... But we're also pragmatic. We understand that not everyone is going to be vegan immediately. So we help. So we, for one example, being um, working on a campaign which was very successful. We helped get CCTV at all slaughterhouses in the UK so that some of the more gratuitous cruelty that we documented in those places can at least be monitored and reduced. But um, when it's all said and done, farming animals and slaughtering them can never really be humane because these are sentient beings who deserve to live free from harm and suffering. And would you argue that a case can be made for how the animals are treated and how they are slaughtered? So, for example, if certain nerves are, you know, are, are used to slaughter them where they, they don't feel the pain, or do, do you think uh, that, no, they should just stop animal consumption completely? And, and then what would be your final sort of message to the listeners? Sure, sure so obviously... In theory, some methods are better than others, some things, some ways of treating animals are better than others. But if we treat these sentient beings as just machines and mere uh, things for us to take resources from, that's where the issue lies. These are sentient beings who feel pain, joy, suffering, fear, just like you and I. And the easiest thing we can do is to avoid causing them suffering by being vegan. Um, so my last message is, if you're interested, if you're curious about veganism, if you don't want animals to suffer and die just simply so you can eat why not have a look into it we've got plenty of resources on the animal aid website you can get a free vegan guide you can take part in our seven day vegan challenge 
and you can have a look at all the amazing recipes that we have on there as well. Of course, thank you very much. So is, is it like a website or something? Yeah, yeah, so the Animal Aid website, is mm. our website is animalaid.org.uk and there's a whole veganism section with recipes and all sorts of materials and resources. Um, just, yeah, we, we, we try to make veganism as accessible to everyone as possible. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we appreciate you coming on show again. Um, no worries. Thank you. That was Todd Bradbury, uh, campaign manager at Animal Aid. Um, again, if you would like to get in contact and express your views, you can do so at, with the website, maybe www.voiceofislam.co.uk, or you can ring in at 020-86-87-7878. Or, again, you can tweet by at Voice of Islam UK. Um, you know, Usman, one of the things uh, our guest was mentioning about, um, you know, cruelty where the animals have to face so much cruelty. They are there sometimes, you know. We feel, even, you know, if we go to some countries, let's suppose donkey, sometimes so much burden has been put on his, uh, you know, back. Sometimes you even feel that whatever has been done is it's absolutely wrong. You know, that's the thing that cruelty comes in. It's not only slaughtering one thing. You know, uh, uh, you know and all animals are part of God's creation. And, you know, so Muslims have duty uh, of care to for, for, towards the animals and animals have been given rights as well. You know, if a Muslim treats animals uh, with love and tenderness, he will be blessed by God. And the Quran acknowledges that many animals are of benefit to mankind for transport and other requirements. You know, there's, there's a verse of the Holy Quran where it says that, and he has created horses and mules, and you know, uh, uh, they, they, you know, they that you may ride them. So God has made certain animals for human being, in a sense, you know, for the transportation, as God has mentioned Himself in the Holy Quran. One of the things we you need to understand, this is a circle, right? And uh, the promised Messiah, Shaykh Islam, has mentioned this as well. You know, sometimes we ask this question, why don't everybody become a boss of a company? Why uh, somebody has to, so somebody is, has a lower job than others, okay? Sometimes somebody has to sacrifice for others. What is the reason for it? And the promised Messiah, Shaykh Islam, explained in a very beautiful way. He said that, you know, this is the, this is the way this world is, uh, you know, going around. One has to sacrifice for another, for the higher being. Even human being, they sacrifice themselves for God Almighty. You know, whenever God asks, and there's so many, if history of religions are there, where for the name of God Almighty, if God has asked for something or for the, you know, propagation of that faith that people have given their life, they have walked for miles and miles and thousand miles and sacrificed so many things for to to, for, to you know hold or you know to to, to uh, have the, the faith or the religion as God has uh, instructed them, and it's not something which we when we're discussing about animals that okay why animals has been killed. One of the thing I would like to uh, you know just share and discuss. What do you think if we stop? You know, if people have this consumption of animals, you know, they stop from today on and we start eating, you know, plants. Would that be enough for us? And if you're not eating the meat, which we think is appropriate, Islam says it's not everything, you know, is there to eat. There's certain animals you can eat. You cannot, you know, shouldn't be going after a few things. God has made for different purposes. Let's suppose the horse and the mule is for different purposes. Everything has a purpose behind it, you know. If there's a cow, we normally take a milk from it. You know, we don't slaughter all the cows because we know that they have a certain duty. 
which God has why God has created it. So if we stop eating it, what gonna happen then? Is they're gonna be everywhere then? What do you think? I what was the general point of view on this? I think, as I did mention in the beginning as well, you know, we, we believe in a in a well balanced diet. So exactly. We, we believe in the consumption of both. Hmm. We're not here saying that you know just eat meat or you know just eat um, vegetables. Plant vegetables, yes. And again, as I was saying, for the cruelty aspect, uh, even if you were to breathe, you are taking in, you know, certain microorganisms, and they are of course as a result dying. If you were to drink water, again, the same thing. Even if you're uh, going vegan. And even if you were to do it in an organic manner, there will still be uh, insects or whatnot which would still die as a result of you, you know, uh, farming. So mm. again, there there will be loss of life in both ways if you look at it morally from from our side. So it, it's we a don't thing where, actually again, we don't actually see them, but they are there, which we can't sleep from our naked uh, can't see from our naked eyes, and they are under the soil. And when we are doing farming, so many houses sometimes these houses of snakes or houses of rats, you know. Uh, you are just uh, destroying them in a way because of the farming you know and we are discussing about islam you know uh, islam says in the holy the holy prophet peace be upon him is reported and uh, in i quote here that he said all the creatures uh, at the uh, children are the children of god and best among you is he who treats his creatures well and you know the holy prophet peace be upon him himself when we look at his life that he used to care for animals. There's so many, the saying of the Holy Prophet is yes. is mentioned that and a camel was, you know, he said that I can feel that he's crying because he was, he's not been fed properly. So there are different sayings which I can mention, but due to the certain, you know, limitation of times, I won't go in that, but taking care of the creature is one of the teachings of the Holy Quran. But, you know, men also need meat as part of his diet. But even here, we are taught how to, you know, slaughter animals in human ways such that they are, you know, uh, slaughtered instantly through a single cut. In circumstances where multiple animals are be slaughtered, mankind is taught by Islam to do this in a way that the other animals do not witness the slaughter. It's one of the, you know, very amazing things. It's not something is been done in front of each other. Is you had you have to take even these measures as well when you are slaughtering animal, and this is the you know extent to which man has to consider the feelings of animal. And I've mentioned the saying of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him before that, that if you treat well, uh, you you're, you will be um, uh, your best among the best among you is he who treats his creatures well. And again, even in the conditions of bed, if you were to join the Amd Muslim community, the ninth condition itself is that he shall have sympathy for all of God's creatures and devote his talents to their welfare. Indeed, you know, these are the things we have to understand. But one, as we were discussing today, and one of the you know guests has mentioned, there are certain nutritions are there which comes out of meat. And even though there are supplements for that and you are fulfilling your need, but I think if, let's suppose, we go back in a, in, in, in a time where there is, uh, you know, we ha- haven't got anything or any kind of technology where we can make supplements or, you know, have experiments. It will be something very normal, isn't it? Because we uh, we are not have that much technology to make a supplements and take out the abstract and making the cup, you know, capsules for different nutritions. And in the past, it will be normal to have that because we have, you know, technology and we think that this is not right. 
it is not something you know god has something has said something which is not right god has said that you can do eat meat but there should be a balanced diet it shouldn't be something you become cruel or you're killing the animal or you know giving pain to animal and if if you're doing slaughter it should be done in a you know best manner and one of the things you know we have seen the videos where they are slaughtering uh, you know chickens the way they do it is absolutely wrong there are just a lot of thousands of chicken one place and just dump in and this an uh, yeah. islamic way of doing it in islam it says that you know the uh, if you slaughter animal it should be one cut it should be fast and quick so that doesn't feel it and again if i can just now i think uh, we should look at some of the nutritional impacts so as our first guest as well hazel flight did mention and touched upon this as well that if we were to go into a vegan diet then there would be is you know is processed and there would still be limitations on how some of the people have had to abandon the vegan diet um it does offer advantages as well uh but just cutting out meat and dairy completely can lead to nutritional deficiencies quite quickly actually some of the world's best athletes uh, follow a vegan diet as well um and they've been able to swap out any plant-based alternatives um safely uh but again it can still lead to deficiencies such as calcium intake where you know dairy products are known uh, are a significant source of of calcium in many diets and vegans um don't consume dairy calcium is essential for bone health as we know as well while vegans can obtain calcium from plant-based sources like fortified milk alternatives leafy greens and nuts they may not consume enough to meet their daily requirements and again with vitamin d as well it's necessary for the absorption of calcium so it works hand in hand and bone health as well so a few foods that naturally contain vitamin d and the primary source for most people is actually sunlight exposure vegans especially those in in regions with limited sun exposure mm-hmm. may have a higher risk of vitamin d deficiency which can then impact bone health and overall health as a result again protein intake adequate protein intake is essential for maintaining muscle mass and bone density i think anyone who is um, an avid gym goer would would know this as well and would probably be feeling mm. so okay. some vegans don't consume enough uh, protein which can lead to overall health uh, declining and again vitamin b12 as was also mentioned by the first guest it's essential for man- maintaining healthy nerves and blood cells a deficiency can lead to um uh, affecting your balance and coordination increasing the risk of falls and fractures it is primarily found actually b12 in animal products and then vegan would vegans would need supplements to meet their requirements and in terms of diet quality as well the nutrition quality of a vegan diet can vary widely so a diet in high in processed foods and low fruits vegetables and uh and low in fruits and vegetables and whole grains may lead Uh, to a lack of essential nutrients again for bone health um in terms of physical health uh, uh it having effect on your mental and spiritual health the promise of sayah on whom be peace has said that so far as our eating drinking sleeping and waking are concerned they are essential physical actions and they affect our spiritual well-being our physical uh go is main manifestly related to humanity the relationship of the body and soul is such that one cannot explain it easily careful observation shows that the body is the mother to the soul 
and that's in the philosophy of teachings of Islam. This again implies that you shouldn't starve yourself from nutrients that you need for your well-being. If you go on a vegan diet, it is still important to plan your diet and ensure that you're able to get all the nutrients, uh, whichever way and whichever means you use. If that if that be through other foods or through other supplements, do make sure that you do find the right food supplements. Islam teaches us that we again we should have a balanced diet. In the book, uh, the the way of the seekers by the second caliph of the MD Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmad. Uh, has stated that a child should be given a variety of foods. It should have meat, vegetables and fruit. For dairy habits affect morals and a variety of food is necessary for a variety of morals. It should have more vegetables than meat as meat excites and in childhood there should be as little excitement as possible. According to this, meat should be part of our diets, you know. Mm. But eating it in excess can, of course, have ill effects, which, which is anything. Too much of anything, uh, we are taught a balanced diet, so not just sticking to one thing. Having one thing too much will have its negative effects too, so we're not promoting overeating. I think this is the basic teaching of Islam. Anything you do, there should be balance in it. And one other thing, of course, we're discussing here, the balanced diet is very important. You should not be eating excessive meat. It shouldn't be a case you're eating meat every single day or every, uh, you know, um, three, four times in a week. There should be a balanced diet. You can have you know, uh, chicken or meat, but there should be vegetables you're eating regularly. This is what Islam says, there should be a balance. Whatever you eat, you should have a good proportion. So as you have heard, the second Khalif has mentioned that, to, and one of the very beautiful, uh, you know, uh, beautifully said that for dietary habits affect morals and variety, food is necessary for variety of morals. So I think it's something uh, we should uh, uh, always uh, uh, have this in mind eat but there should be you know uh, vegetables in your diet as well there should be a balanced diet if you know uh, if we discuss the health impact of veganism where we would talked a little bit about the kind of deficiencies that may arises from adopting a vegan diet now you know let's have a look at what kind of health issues might be experienced as a result of those deficiencies firstly you know when it comes to uh, children, a study by the Great Ormond Street Institute of Child Health, and uh, you know, actually, uh, it's shown that vegan children would need vitamin B and vitamin D supplements to ensure that they had a nutrient needed. So, vegan children, in contrast to meat-eating children, may also end up growing shorter. A, a result of the study showed that vegan children had lower bone mass even after encountering for their smaller body and bone size. This means they may enter uh, adolescence a phase when bone specific nutrient need are higher with the bone deficit already established. So speaking of bone mass, you know, another long uh, running uh, study called that the epic Oxford study revealed that the people who do not eat meat are more at risk of breaking bones, especially their hips, the effect may stem from a lack of calcium and protein in their diet, as well as you know the fact that they tend to be thinner and so have less flesh on, um, you know, cushion a uh, fall. Having said that, in today's age of produced foods, etc., it is important, uh, you know, to to up your vegetable intakes. And most of the time, even though we say that we're eating meat, but it's a, it's a processed food. So it's very important to increase your veg vegetable intake. And the study 
by the Great Ormond Street Institute of Child Health also found that vegan kids did have significantly lower level of harmful LDL you know, cholesterol. And there was some indication that vegan children had better uh, cardiovascular health and lower body fat. This is a result of vegetables and intake of healthy fats rather than, you know, saturated fats. This is great importance to balance diet in the teaching of Islam. And that's what we were discussing from the very beginning. The promised Messiah, uh, peace, on whom be peace, referred the Holy Quran in his, in his book, The Philosophy of Teaching of Islam. He said that eat meat and other foods, but do not eat anything to excess, lest your moral state be adversely affected and your health might suffer. So the balance is very important. This is the whole core of Islamic teaching that whenever you want to eat, you should have a balanced diet. You should eat uh, both things. Now we're going to go uh, to a recording or audio clip where a question was asked to the fourth caliph, His Holiness. And I read the question before we go to the, to, to the answer. He said that I read book in the name of Allah from a library and it was written on it that this this man is not a Muslim. My question is extension of compassion to other God's creature. Should the animals be pre-stunned before sacrifice? Would Moses and Muhammad, peace be upon him, be vegetarian if they are living today? So please listen to it. We'll be back right after. Um, thank you, Jazakumullah. Thank you for the answer. I'll begin with the first part of the answer first. I believe in the uh, validity of religious practices all over the world uh, of partaking of animal flesh. I think there is nothing in it which is against the overall grand plan of God who is all compassionate and all merciful. He must be understood in the reflective mirror of nature he has created and the history of evolution which is better known to us today than ever before. You see the level of consciousness is different at different stages of life and killing of other animals situated at lower orders is a law in nature, not an exception. Despite the fact that some animals are known to be uh, vegetarians, even these vegetarians eat up a lot of living things. I'm not talking of bacteria, insects, worms, and so many things. Become a daily part of the diet of the so-called vegetarian animals. So, you, if you study, the issue you must study in this wider canvas of the behavior of life. And there we find that big fish eats the smaller fish and it is a law of nature and it is not against the compassion of God. If it were so, there will be no evolutionary movement forward and the life would get stuck at very rudimentary stages of its creation. So, one thing I 
apologetically point to you is that to understand the concept of compassion must require a wider study of the overall plan of God's creation. Without reference to it, you can't understand that compassionability. One lesson, however, we draw from that is that what is important in that plan of God is higher quality in relation to the lower quality. The numbers do not matter, the quality matters. And that is the directive force of evolution. Quality is never sacrificed for the sake of number. Number is always sacrificed for the sake of quality. Even in human birth, at every time, every, every time a child is conceived, the same phenomenon takes over. Millions of potential cells with possibilities of creating, uh, of, of uh, creating new babies, if they find a matching ovum, of course, potentially they have that qualities. They are wasted. For the sake of just one single fortunate cell which ultimately reaches its goal. And there it is always the phenomena of the survival of the fittest. So survival of the fittest is a law which does operate in nature and also in religion philosophies. But it takes different shapes. So permission to eat the animal flesh is drawn not only from one stray religious injunction, but it is drawn from the overall, overall philosophy of the life, its plan on things and how it interrelates with other uh, members of life or different species. But in the same species, except for the rudimentary, elementary case of the sea life, you do not find it a common practice for animals to kill each other. Even in the world of uh, beasts, lions, tigers, wolves, hungry packs of wolves do not eat other fellow beings of their own sort. So that is the second lesson. Compassion is confined in relation to a certain species far more than in relation to the lower species. And the lack of compassion which you find is compensated in them by their lack of compassion to other things of lower order. So it's a much larger scheme of uh, crime and punishment, if you call it, or uh, what is called, I'm sorry, that, that phrase, cause and, cause and effect, which uh, you find everywhere manifested in nature. Welcome back. Uh, probably you have heard the answer. This is the uh, true understanding of Islamic teaching. Again, at the end, if you are going to a vegan diet, it is important that you consult with a you know, dietitian and doctors. 
and uh, you know always have a balanced diet and lawful food we'll be joining you after news break please join us after that the holy quran states allah is the light of the heavens and the earth an-nur is that being through whose light a physically blind person sees and a person who has gone astray finds guidance it is that being who is apparent and through whom all things are manifested his being is apparent in himself and makes things evident for others as well the true light is god which can be perceived in everything by those with insight however one who is devoid of spiritual sight cannot see it a believer is firm on the belief that the universe that can be observed as well as the universe that cannot be observed is created by god in order to give an understanding of this light god sends his chosen people who spread the nur which comes down from the heavens throughout the world the promised messiah on whom be peace writes that light of high degree that was bestowed on perfect man was not in angels was not in the stars was not in the moon was not in the sun was not in the oceans or the rivers was not in rubies or emeralds or sapphires or pearls in short it was not in any earthly or heavenly object it was only in perfect man whose highest and loftiest and most perfect example was our lord and master the chief of the prophets the chief of all living ones muhammad the chosen one peace and blessings of allah be on him the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be on him set the most excellent example and the highest standard of nur which was established as a reflection of the light of god and which will continue till the day of judgment the nur he received was conveyed to his companions and established excellent morals amongst them so much so that he likened them to the stars after the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be on him the reflection of god's light was the promised messiah on whom be peace this was due to complete subordination of his master not only did god fill the promised messiah on whom be peace with nur that was sent down more than 1400 years ago he also granted him the station to spread this nur 
the promised Messiah on whom be peace, wrote that no one knew him, and God compelled him out of his solitude, and told him that he would bestow upon him honor and make him renowned all over the world. It is a way of God that when he adorns someone with nur, he manifests it to the world. After all, when the worldly light has a capacity to spread, how can the light of God stay hidden? Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessing for Allah be upon you all. Welcome once again here in Lifetime Show. You're listening to Anikur Rahman. And I'm joined by Usman Ali Anjum here in the studio, who's my co presenter. Uh, we've been here uh, from four o'clock. We'll be discussing a topic in the first hour that does. You know, the vegan diet make you weaker or not? And we were discussing thoroughly in depth. And now we're going to move to our second topic of uh, this hour. It's going to be uh, interesting. I think it's going to be something important, especially what's been happening in the world right now. We'll be discussing a topic which is, I think, most needed to discuss is war and peace. Comparative, you know, the religious teachings what Islam says and what, you know, other people or, or what as a Muslim we should be doing it and what others should be doing it according to their teachings. For this uh, topic, we'll be having some guests uh, on board as well who will be discussing this topic in depth. And you can, of course, call uh, call uh, us on 0208-687-7878 and uh, you can tweet at Voice of Islam UK and visit our website www.voiceofislam.co.uk Yes, Usman, uh, as I mentioned that we will be discussing a topic which is war and peace and I think looking at the world, just the situation right now I think it's something very important which we need to be discussing here and our listeners especially should be hearing it and if they can do something in their circle they should do accordingly, isn't it? Of course, and I think one of the things I've seen as well is that one of the uh, misconceptions, which is quite widespread, might have been, hopefully not so much now with time, but is that you know Islam is, God forbid, a terrorist. Uh, they are ISIS and and yeah. all these sort of individuals or little groups which account for a minority, not, probably not even a percent of Muslims, are then portrayed as the the face uh, of Islam and uh, as though they are following the teachings. But that's not the case. And that's why I'm actually quite glad that we're uh, discussing this topic today. Hmm. Because not only are we going to look at the Quranic teachings and the you know, what the prom- what the Holy Prophet, who is the embodiment of the Quran, ha- has also taught in, in, in these regards, but we'll also be showing what other religions teach as well. Uh, and I think that will give a good overview and a vast sort of understanding to the listeners. Well, at least a better un- uh, understanding. So at the True. end of the hour, they have benefit from it. You know, of course, in the context of global conflicts and the pursuit of peace, uh, the Islam Islamic perspective on war and peace, you know, offers profound insight rooted in the Quranic teachings and the practices of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessing of Allah be upon him. And, you know, this perspective emphasizes ethical conduct during times of conflict and, you know, underscores the importance of just, you know, causes and humanitarian treatment even in the midst of warfare. And as Usman mentioned, I think Usman is, you're very much right, is something very important. 
I think I've spoken to many people as a being a missionary myself. I've um, uh, you know discussed with many uh, you know Western uh, people here in England or you know some other countries. What I you know the, my conclusion is that they even they don't know. They have just heard from the TV or television that what's been happening and what's been you know picturized that this is Islam. But when you tell the true teachings of Islam and the life of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, they you know, get amazed that how is it possible that we have been told the other things for so many years and now the picture, the true picture is totally opposite. And sometimes, you know, people think, okay, he's just saying it, maybe just is uh, a word of his mouth and just making up things. And when I refer, you know, the books which has been written you know, 100 years back and by even, you know, English historian or the Western historian, even they have mentioned in many places that the, the, the Islam and the, the Prophet, you know, Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he was, you know, best among people. He was kind and he was, he never wanted to fight somebody. And we'll be discussing this, especially in the war and peace, that what he has done, how he has fought, you know, uh, wars, whether he was willing to fight it, whether he was in the beginning, you know, just wanted to avoid it, and what he has done to avoid actually. Of and course. When there was a time, why he had to, you know, fight. So I think our listeners who will be listening to us today will be having more understanding and we just present the life of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, that that's how he was, that's how he, you know, uh, managed or, you know, find the solution that how we can get rid of war and have peace within the society. And again, that, that's I think that's a key topic for today. And I'm actually, again, as I said, I'm quite excited about it in one way because I think that we'll be able to present the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, his his, his character to the, to to you guys today. Indeed. In terms of the teaching of Islam, it actually fits with the, the instincts of man and promotes peace. Um, again, it forbids aggression. So it's not as if you can be the aggressor. It's actually where, you know, failing to fight will jeopardize peace or promote further war or further loss of life or sort of further negative impacts. It means that where, for example, uh, your free belief or um, your preaching or your your rights are at risk, that's the time where in self-defense we can then act. And this is actually the teaching the Prophet, peace be upon him, actually followed. And again, as Muslims, he is the example for us to follow. So if we look at when uh, he was... Uh, uh, he, there was a lot of sort of um, uh, uh, mistreatment, aggression and difficulties they went through, not just him, his followers in Mecca. And then when they uh, for even they were boycotted and then when they went to Medina, it continued. And again, he did not fight until God in the Quran gave him the permission to fight in, in Surah um, chapter 22, which is verse 40 to 42, where it says that permission to fight is given to those against whom war is made because they have been wronged and Allah indeed has power to help them. Those who have been driven out from their homes unjustly only because they said our Lord is Allah. And if Allah did not repel some men by means of others, there would be sure there would surely have been pulled cloisters and churches and synagogues and mosques, wherein the name of Allah is oft commemorated. And Allah will surely help one who helps him. Allah is indeed powerful, mighty, those who, if we establish them in the earth, will observe prayer and pay the zakat and enjoin good and forbid evil. And with Allah rests the final issue of all affairs. 
As Usman, you mentioned, I think uh, we'll be discussing very in 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 a in a different in in uh, slowly, I should say, that how everything was happening there. You know, we just think that okay, it was just a little bit of uh, mistreatment to him. It wasn't the case. It was a lot of things was done to him, and indeed we'll be discussing it today. That you know, which which you know allow somebody to react, or you know he can take his revenge. But what the Holy Prophet peace be upon him did, we'll be discussing. Uh, you know, uh, let let let's let's I think uh, uh, start. Uh, from the beginning, once again, as you mentioned a bit of it, yes, you would like to say something. Again, I was going to say that even, for example, in this verse, it's not just that we're protecting, you know, mosques. We're protecting all places of worship, all places where God is um, worshipped. So that's the teaching of Islam. It's actually universal where in any place, synagogues, cloisters, churches, they all were protected. So it was not just that it's for Islam. And even with all the with all the cruelty, and all the the treatment of Muslims, you know, stones, warm stones put on their chest of of the companions. Fighting was only after when it was given, when the permission was given, and in self-defense. Yeah. Yes, you're very much right. Uh, from the day one, when the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, claimed that he is a prophet, God has assigned him as a prophet, he start, you know, facing persecution. People start joining him. He had to. People have, you know, he was used to be used to praying in front of the, you know, the holy Kaaba, you know, the sacred uh, Kaaba in 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 Mecca, where people used to, you know, take the dirt of animal and used to put on on his shoulder while he was, you know, uh, bowing down in front of God Almighty, and uh, one sometime one once one place we find in the saying that he was, you know, people slept, uh, was slapping on his neck. And all due, or all of things, all of, all of these things were due because he's claimed that he's a prophet of God. And you discuss about the, you know, the, the people who accepted him. There's a narration where, you know, they used to tie up one leg to one camel and other leg to another camel. And they used to, you know, uh, ask, you know, or push the camels to different directions. And the human who was attached to it was used to, you know, became a part and from, from the middle. So these kind of persecutions were going on. There's so many people were martyred. And what happened at the end? That a, a time comes where on one side he was a noble person in the society. His wife was a rich woman. His grandfather was a noble person. But he has been asked to leave, you know, Mecca. He has stayed in the valley of uh, Abi Talib. And they stayed there for three years. One of the narration we find that they had no food. You know, again, people were fighting. They were doing whatever they can do to stop their food, stop their water. Nobody should be, you know, selling anything. And that's all, you know, documented that they used to buy something. Nobody was allowed to sell anything to them. And these kind of persecution they were facing. And uh, what happens, The one of the saying where we find that one of the companion of Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, mentioned that when... Uh, you know, something came in his uh, under his foot, and he felt that that thing is a bit a bit uh, is, is soft, and he said that because I was so hungry, and there was very limited. When sometimes they used to have food, they was hungry for a good two three years. He picked that thing, and you know, he just had it. He just you know ate that thing, 
and he says that I didn't know what I have eaten. So this kind of persecution was happening. And a time comes, you know, where people were joined that they could have fought back. People used to throw stones on them. And even then, he, you know, he didn't fight. He didn't fight back. And God said to, you know, migrate from there. And he migrated to Medina, which is two, three hundred miles away, if I'm not mistaken. And correct me if, if, if that's the distance. But what happens that the Meccans, even though the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and the companion have migrated from there, they, they, you know, they come after the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and due to their, their coming to the Mecca, sorry, Medina, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, had to, you know, had to fight with them. We'll be discussing and we'll be carrying on this this discussion. Sagir Bajwa Sahib with us. Uh, I think we had the wrong info, but uh, Imam serving indeed in uh, you know in, in Cayman Islands, uh, and he's a missionary of Amdiya Muslim uh, Association. Uh, Sagir Bajwa, if would like to ask, as we as you know, we are discussing a topic war and peace. Can you please tell you know the Quranic uh, addresses the treatment of prisoners, and could you elaborate? on the Quranic guidance regarding the humane treatment of prisoners on war and how does Islam emphasizes their rights and dignity even in conflict? Assalamu alaikum. Yes, wa alaikum Right, no, thank you for the question. Um, you know, the Quran has given very clear guidance when it comes to the treatment of prisoners. And the most beautiful aspect about all this is, is that it was implemented by the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him as well. And so when we read history and we see the character of the Prophet and we read the actual evidence that's been recorded in books of history, we see how the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, implemented these teachings of the Quran as well. So the ver first verse that I will share with, uh, uh, with, with you and uh, the rest of the uh, listeners, this is chapter... Eight of the Holy Quran, Surah Al-Anfal, verse number eight. And this really sets the foundation about how it's Muslims and uh, Islam, God, Allah in the Holy Quran has instructed Muslims when it comes to holding captives. Allah says in this verse, Makana li nabiyin an yakuna lahu asra hatta yuskhina fil ard. The translation is, it does not behove a prophet that he should have captives until he engages in regular fighting in the land. And the reason I've started or I've presented this verse uh, first is because this really sets the foundation and it, it, it talks volumes about what the temperament of Muslims should be. When we study the history of Islam and we study the history of Arabia, before Islam, it was actually customary to take prisoners over simple enmity between tribes mm -hmm. for no reason, right? Regardless of there, if there was a, a war happening and so on and so forth. And the worst part of it all was that those prisoners were kept as permanent slaves. But when Islam came and the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, came, Islam put an immediate end to this and declared that until a full-on battle occurs, no one should be imprisoned. And even further, it goes even further that those prisoners should be released immediately after the war comes to an end. 
And so we can see that the whole prison system, even in times of war, is to is for is for the maintenance and and uh, to to the establishment of peace. Because until until those uh, soldiers who are fighting you and trying to kill you, they need to be reprimanded in some ways, in some some form. And so as far as releasing them is concerned in Surah Muhammad, this is chapter 47, verse number five, Allah says, then afterwards either release them as a favor or by taking ransom. So as soon as the war is over, the Quran commands Muslims to release them. And as far as, of course, your question is concerned about the treatment of prisoners, it's really important to understand that there was no prison system, right? There were no jail cells. There was, it was, it was early uh, uh, in that time of Arabia. There were no institutionalized prisons where captives could be held. Mm-hmm. So the Prophet Muhammad would actually distribute the prisoners amongst the Muslim soldiers. And so these prisoners would literally go into the homes of Muslims and live with the Muslims. And as far as treatment is concerned, in one verse of the Holy Quran, Surah Al-Dahar, chapter 76, verse number 9, Allah says, Translation is that believers are those, the righteous and virtuous believers are those that they feed for the love of God, for the love of Him, the poor, the orphan, and the prisoner. And like I said, when we see the ahadith and we see that uh, what history has recorded, this is exactly how the, the captives were, were held by Muslims. There's this one story and I will, I will end with this, that his name was Abu Aziz ibn Umar. He, it's recorded that he was a, a prisoner after the Battle of Badr. And he says, this is his own testimony. He says, I was a prisoner of the Ansar after Badr. When it was time to eat, they would give me bread and suffice on dates themselves. So much so that I would be ashamed to eat with them. We can see from verses and from this example as well that even in times of conflict, Allah has not only instructed Muslims to uphold the rights and dignity of prisoners, but it it has actually instructed Muslims to engage with them with kindness and respect. You're very much right, uh, uh, Sagir. And I think this is the fundamental teaching of Islam to win the hearts. Even though that's what they were doing, they were showing kindness towards them. And that's what mm-hmm. Talib of Islam did. Moving on, you know, the f- discussing forgiveness and reconciliation, you know, are often emphasized in Islamic teaching. How does uh, the Quranic uh, or how does the Holy Quran advocate for forgiveness, even in challenging situations? Right, so that's a great question. When it comes to the teachings of Islam, Islam has put, of course, a great emphasis on justice. That if someone does wrong, then of course they need to be held accountable for their actions. But a beautiful verse of the Quran, this is taken from chapter 42, Surah Ashura. This is verse number 41. This really opens our eyes as to what is the will of Allah when it comes to the treatment of people who do wrong, who may commit crimes, so on and so forth. Allah says, Jaza'u sayyiatin sayyiatun mithluha. That the recompense, the recompense of an injury is an injury the like thereof. Meaning if someone does bad, then they should be held accountable for their deeds. They, they should be, justice should be served. They should be, if punishment is needed, 
to reconcile their situation, to reform them, then of course, the human psyche also, and just our rationale also points towards the fact that this person should be punished so that they can learn a lesson and that they do not further commit mistakes. But then Allah points our att- uh, turns our attention to what He wills. He says, "Faman afa wa aslaha, fa ajruhu Allah." But whoso forgives, and his act brings about reformation, his reward is with Allah. Surely he does not love the wrongdoers. And so this verse, we see that Allah has explained that if forgiveness can lead to, if somebody is seeking forgiveness for their crimes, and that forgiveness will lead to them changing their ways and reforming themselves, then mercy and forgiveness should always be given preference by the Muslims. And this is what the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ, he was a shining example of this. You know, he was instructed for 13 long years during the persecution of early, early days of Islam at the hands of the Meccans. Muslims who were being fed up, you can imagine 13 years of persecution, people being killed, people being boycotted, the companions would come to the Prophet, peace be upon him, and they would ask the Prophet that, Ya Rasulullah, O Messenger of Allah, let us defend ourselves. Let us take up arms and defend ourselves. But the Prophet ﷺ for 13 long years, because it was Allah's command to show forgiveness, to show kindness. Allah says in Surah Al-Araf, chapter 7, verse 200, Allah says, Khuzil Take to forgiveness. Wa'mur bil urf and enjoin kindness and turn away from the ignorant people. And so the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, as you just asked, how does the Quran advocate for the forgiveness, for forgiveness, and even in challenging situations? We need to always remember that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was a walking example of the Quran. And he always chose to forgive in the most challenging situations. I mean, he even forgave Habar bin Aswad. Habar, for those who do not know, Habar murdered the da- beloved daughter of the Prophet, peace be upon him, Hazrat Zainab anha. He even chose to forgive Hind bin Utba, the woman who maimed and mutilated his beloved uncle Hamza. So imagine how difficult it would be for you to be able to forgive in such situations. But the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wasallam like I said, who was a personification of the Quranic teachings. He never sought revenge for his own sake, even if it was justified. I mean, if the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, punished those people for the brutal crimes and for the vicious crimes they committed, no one would have said that, oh, that is injustice. But his mercy always prevailed because he was rahmatul lil alameen. He was a mercy for mankind. And as Muslims, we are obliged to follow his esteemed example. If, especially if we wish to win the pleasure of Allah. I think, of course, that's more uh, aimed towards the individual treatment. But in terms of Islamic principles and teachings regarding um, recon- uh, solving conflicts uh, peacefully, can you share some Quranic uh, principles related to what, in terms of what the Quran teaches for uh, resolving conflicts? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's definitely, you're absolutely right. This speaks more about on an individual level. When it comes to peaceful conflict resolution between parties or between 
even nations. There's one verse that I will share with you. This is taken from Surah Muhammad, chapter 47. This is verse number 10. It is a longer verse, so I will just uh, read the English translation. Allah says, And if two parties of believers fight against each other, make peace between them. Then it, if after that one of them transgresses against the other, fight the party that transgresses until it returns to the command of Allah. Then if it returns, make peace between them with equity and act justly. Verily, Allah loves the just. Now, of course, from this verse, this verse primarily, as it's clear from the translation as well, it deals with the settlement of disputes between Muslim parties. But it equally embodies a sound basis on which a really effective League of Nations or United Nations organization can be built. This verse lays down the following principles for the maintenance of international peace. There's, there's different indications, different principles that Allah has turned our attention to. The very first being that if we see that there's a disagreement between two nations, two people, two parties, it, it applies not just from the individual, but it also can be brought into the national scope as well. That other nations, instead of taking sides with one another or against one another, they should at once, they should serve notice upon both of the parties that are at conflict or at a dispute. And they should tell them to submit their differences to this organized body that has been established so that their case could be heard. And if they both agree, their dispute can be amicably settled. But if one of them, then Allah says, but if one of them goes against this teaching and still wishes to fight, then what the other countries should do or the other nations and other parties should do is that they should stand for what is right. They should stand for what is just. And they should tell that one party that if you continue transgressing, then we will all stand up against you. And of course, that doesn't matter how strong a person might be, how strong a nation an entire nation might be. When all other nations stand up for justice and stand up for peace, then it's bound to happen that that, per- that that nation or that person or that party will also submit. And so by implementing this, terms of peace can be very easy- easily settled between the two original uh, nations or two original parties. And this verse, you know, this, this verse also tells us the other nations should act merely as mediators. This is very important, especially given what's happening out in the world today. Other nations watching, they should they should serve as mediators, not as parties to the dispute. They shouldn't bring up more further issues to, to add fuel to the fire. Rather, Allah has made it very clear that the other nations are there to put out the fire. And in terms of establishing peace, a fundamental aspect of establishing peace is, in fact, justice. How does the Quran emphasize the importance of justice and fairness in society? Are there any specific Quranic verses uh, that addressed the establishment of this justice and its role in creating a peaceful and harmonious society. Yeah, I know the Quran is filled with verses and injunctions of upholding justice in, in, in all walks of life. One verse which comes to mind right away, this is verse number 9 of chapter 5. Allah says, O ye who believe, be steadfast in the cause of Allah, bearing witness in equity. And let not a people's enmity incite you to act otherwise than with justice. Be always just, that is nearer to righteousness, 
and fear Allah. Surely Allah is well aware of what you do. So in this verse, the Holy Quran has set a very high standard of justice, so much so that even the enemies, this is what it's speaking, that do not let a people's enmity incite you to act with otherwise with justice, that even enemies should be treated with the utmost justice. And if I may say, surely no other religion gives such a fair and just teaching even about its enemies. And then as far as the words uh, are concerned uh, toward the end of the verse where Allah says, and fear Allah, surely Allah is well aware of what you do. This contains a stern warning that the equal treatment or just treatment of the enemy should not be done or should not be uh, enjoined by way of show. It shouldn't just be, oh, if we're not just to this nation, if we're not just to this party, then the entire world will see that we're being unjust. No, Allah says, fear Allah. So this act of justice and act of peace should come from within our hearts and it should be with, with knowing very well that this is the command of Allah and Allah commands us to be just. And if I may share one more verse, and this, this really does <clears throat> show us what high standards Islam has uh, established for for justice. Allah says, "Inna Allaha ya'muru bil adli wal ihsani wa itaiz al qurba." This is this is verse number ninety one of chapter sixteen. Allah says, "Verily, Allah enjoins justice." So justice in this in this uh, verse, Allah in the Quran has said that justice is actually the bare minimum standard of human interaction. That if someone does good to you, then the bare minimum of a from a moral and a good person is that he should he should do the same goodness back. And so justice in this verse has been Allah has turned our attention to the fact that this is the bare minimum. If you wish to be even better Muslims, wish to even be uh, better morally and spiritually, then you should strive to do well ihsan then regardless of how others are treating you, you should always, irrespective of how their treatment is towards you, you should, you should seek to do good to others. And then for those who wish to reach the pinnacles of morality and spirituality, Allah says, And irrespective of <clears throat> whether someone is doing good to you or bad to you or doing, going up above and beyond for you, you should treat all of humanity like they are your, your, your kindred. You should give to them the way a mother gives to their children. And we know very well that this is exactly what the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, showed us throughout his life. And <clears throat> in his last sermon at Hajj, <clears throat> he is famously, we, we know the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, how he famously stated that a black person is not superior to a white person, nor is a white person superior to a black person nor is an Arab to a non-Arab or a non-Arab to an Arab. And so this is the pinnacle of justice and the Prophet Muhammad, the Quran, established these teachings more than 1,500 years ago. And if the world were to see these teachings of justice and implement these teachings of justice today, then surely we would live in a peaceful and, and, and a serene world. And as the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, sorry, the, the worldwide head, the current worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, just recently stated as well that without justice, there is no peace. 
And so the Holy Quran has gone above and beyond to teach us what true justice looks like. And we, in the end, we just pray that may Allah turn the attention of the world to these beautiful teachings and may we be able to implement them and see a world that is filled with peace. Beautiful. Well, thank you very much for such a beautiful insight upon the Islamic view. Thanks thank for you, joining thanks us. Having. That was Sagir Bajra, the Imam, serving the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in the Cayman Islands. We got it right this time. And again, if you want to join and if you would like to give your input, you can call us on 020-8687-7878. Or if you wish, you can use you can join us by tweeting at Voice of Islam UK. Or again, you can visit the website, which is www.voiceofislam.co.uk. Okay, now uh, we'll be <coughs> going uh, to one of the audio clips which we have and uh, regarding War and Peace. So we'll listen to that and we'll be back right after that. We're going to move slightly further north uh, to Canada uh, to Tanvir Saab, Tanvir Ahmed Saab, who writes in Jazakumullah for your very kind comments. He asks about resolving conflicts and war and what could be the role of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in, uh, in doing so? Jangir Saab. Um, well, you see, what we're doing in the world, and since our, in our very inception, is that we are trying to correct man, mankind, from within. Because what you see on the world uh, field, for example, at the United Nations, or when nations meet, when people talk to each other, when they come on the television, etc. What you see political leaders saying is that they're all for peace. That their, their whole discourse is about, we love peace, we want peace, we're going to do everything to establish peace, establish human rights and all that, you know? So it all sounds very nice, but whenever their national interests are at stake, then you see the real sentiments coming to the fore. And then you can see when they're, when they're tested, whether war and warfare comes up, out of their boils out of their hearts or is it real peace as they were t talking about previously unfortunately these days this is what we see and it's not only in the political uh, on the political level it's also in the religious world as well we'll see for example religious leaders who who really don't care how immoral their followers are becoming they really they couldn't care less and so they'll allow them to become really you know criminal they're not following their faith at all and they don't really, uh, they sleep, you know, uh, as they used to sleep before. That doesn't bother them at all. But if they see that one of their followers has been taken over by another religion, you know, some other religion which is out there, you know, preaching, and they've managed to convert them into their fold, then you see them rising up and uh, creating mayhem and asking their followers to go and kill those people. You see, then you see that those people too, those religious leaders too, and this goes across the board, whether it's in the Islamic world or the Buddhist world or the Hindu world, the Christian world, Jewish world, we'll see there are those religious leaders who are like that, who are out there, and they have uh, warfare within them. So it means that the real problem is what's in their hearts. Now, it, when people try to solve conflicts in the world, what they do is they work, they work on the surface level. They try to, you know, the, to use means and methods which only are on the top of the thing. Mm. They don't go down to the root cause. They don't try to change the people from within. Mm. But the real revolution can only happen, and the real peace that we want, all want, can only come about 
if that is sorted out first, and this is why you'll see that from its very inception, the Ahmadiyya movement, which is the renaissance of true Islam, has been dealing with that aspect. So everywhere we go, we're telling people, you have to come back to godliness. You have to come back to goodness. You have to come back to justice. You have to come back to unselfishness, you know. Once you've sorted those things out, then you will not allow yourself to become a warmongering person. And then if you're a leader, all the better, because then it will not affect other people either. So this is what the, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has been doing. And fearlessly, I've seen, for example, in certain areas where, you know, there are countries which are uh, ruled by people who are, I wouldn't say tyrannical, but who are, you know, who have a very strong grip on their nation. And sometimes Ahmadis are, are, have to address these people. And I've seen the leaders of our communities, the Amirs of our communities, address them and tell them where they're going wrong. And you could imagine that these people could take it very unkindly, but often they, they don't really mind because they can see that these people are very sincere. And this is because Ahmadis are people who are sincere. When you become an Ahmadi, you become an Ahmadi at, you know, uh, at the price of, of great sacrifices. Often people in your family will abandon you. You might be kicked out of your job. You might lose so many things. So Ahmadis, if they become people have become Ahmadis, they've been tested and they've been tried. Their metal has been put to the test and they've proven themselves to be sincere. And so when a person is sincere, others can also feel this, you see. So Ahmadis are out there talking to the leaders and telling them things fearlessly. And we've seen the best case of that out of all is that of our own caliph. May Allah strengthen his hand. He's been out there, he's addressed parliaments, he's addressed the greatest leaders on, on the planet, fearlessly. And he's told them where they're going wrong. And some, sometimes you'll see great politicians sitting there like little children yeah. in a classroom, listening to the Khalifa, you know, giving them a lecture. And then saying that you're absolutely correct. A question you know? that springs to my mind, Jazakumullah Jangi Saab. Um, I hope that answers your question, Tanvi Saab. Uh, just a question following on from that, Qasid um, Saab. I suppose what I'd like to ask is what can the members of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community individually do? We've heard some brilliant examples of what the leaders are doing and of course our own Khalifa is setting the best example. But what can practically be done by just everyday people and even members of the public who are not part of the community? You know, what, what, how can we get involved to resolve conflicts of war? Well, in fact, the, the solution to that is in that very question that, you know, individuals, it is the individuals that can actually bring about change. It's not a certain political party or it's not representatives. It's everyone in totality. It's the individual from within that can actually do something. For instance, I'll give you the example. The Holy Prophet wasallam once said in a hadith, and this is what Ahmadis live by and what we try to promote. The Holy Prophet said, La yu'minu ahadukum. Uh, that none of you can be a true believer until he loves for his brother what he likes for himself. When you're putting your brother first, when you're putting the other individual first, before yourself, because what this in actuality is saying that don't look for your own rights, look for the rights of your brother, find the rights of your brother, and in doing so, he will also look for the rights for your you know, own self. When there's this harmonious sort of lifestyle, or where this this harmonious um, environment where everyone is looking after the rights of others instead of fighting for the rights of their own selves 
that's the ideal situation. Although it seems very, you know, utopian, but it is possible. The Ahmadiyya Muslim Jamaat, by the sheer grace and blessings of Allah, it does live by this. It has been doing so for the last 127 years, and it will, inshallah, God willing, continue to do so. Inshallah. And this is what it, you know, if, if someone, I'll give you the example of a person who, you know, living in his house, he doesn't have his house under control. You know, his children are a mess, his wife, he, you know, he, he constantly quarrels with his wife. But he goes across the road and knocks on the other person's door and says, you know, you're not, and if, he, if he's in the same sort of situation and he tells him to admonish his wife and admonish his children that you're not, you know, looking after your house properly, that person will say, well, go and take, you know, go and look after your home first and then be in a position to tell me what to do. That is exactly Charity what is, home, exactly, yeah, that, that is what, <clears throat> what in essence is the interpretation of this hadith. That charity begins at home. Until you don't perfect yourself or the perfect your own sort of you know, responsibility, the people who are under you and who are in your responsibility, until you haven't done that, you, are, you cannot or you should not be in a position to go and tell other people that you are wrong or you uh, should perfect yourself first. And that fits in quite perfectly, as some of our audience will know, to the Friday ceremonies that have been delivered by our Khalifa recently, he's continually reminding us to reflect on our own actions first exactly. before looking at helping others, although both are very important. Absolutely. I mean, double standards is something that Qasid has uh, alluded to, and mm. this is what we find in world conflicts, that world political powers have got double standards when it comes to dealing with different nations. And this is the thing that, is that, as Jahangir Sabah said, is at the root of the problem, and that is what has got to be sorted out. So that is what our aim is, to make sure that the world becomes a more just place so that these double standards do not exist. And they have to be from grassroots up throughout all societies, throughout nations, throughout international borders, so that this can be achieved. The Ahmadiyya Muslim community holds a unique position, as my two colleagues have said, that we are worldwide. We have no political or geographical ambitions to gain, to gain land. And we have one leader who speaks with a divinely appointed voice and the whole nation lis listens to him. So our CV is great. The whole world, in fact. The whole world listen, listens to him as Jahid mm. So our CV is great and that is why we have a pivotal role in establishing world peace. And that is what the efforts of our leader, uh, His Holiness, the Khalifa al-Masih has been. And may Allah continue to strengthen his hands so that mm. we continue to see the success of mm. world peace and success of Islam and Ahmadiyyat in our lifetimes. Mm. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah for another a very detailed and comprehensive answer. Tamid Sahib, I have doubt that there is anything left unanswered, but of course, if there is, you know what to do. It's faithmatters at mta.tv. Welcome back. After the audio clip, and you have heard that what Islam teaches on this particular topic, uh, we were discussing, uh, you know, the war, <clears throat> and uh, for uh, for this particular topic, if we, you know, carry on the life of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, you know, we find that I was mentioning before that, <clears throat> you know, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, has fought wars when Meccans came after the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, in Medina, and then God, you know, allowed him to fight, allowed them to fight against Meccans to you know prevail the name of Islam and even though they were only 300 they have didn't have uh, you know swords or horses as they had they were fully equipped 
but why god you know basically given this permission to the holy prophet peace be upon him just because to save the name of god almighty and the name of islam and god himself mentioned the holy quran that i have given the victory to you it was me and you know even the companion of the prophet peace be upon him mentioned that you know the, the angels has fought with us and even though the battle was won by the muslims you know even then you know what you people used to do they used to you know uh, have a you know they just what do you say you know they they, they used to uh, have a cut on the face and to uh, but in islam is not allowed to uh, not allowed to mutilate mutilate exactly exactly mutilate the you know the faces and uh, it is it's very important that's what the holy prophet peace be upon him did and muslim are forbidden altogether to you know um, uh, mutilate the dead and muslims are forbidden to restore resort the you know cheating and chil- and children are not been killed or women and that's what the holy prophet did actually regardless if you take any war he never kill a child it was a fundamental teaching do not kill a child do not you know harm women do not harm any elders and do, do not uh, you know destroy mosque and uh, uh the temples and churches and if a prophet is saying the fundamental you know the, the basic principle of war and you know that's how one should be doing it but when we look around us so we can clearly see that this is against the principles of war and even people nowadays you know admire this and and have understanding that whatever has been said is ex, you know absolutely right and this is what even world say which the prophet sallam said 1400 years back that that's how a war should be fought of course and again the thing about islam is even in these trying times where you know you're fighting for your life there are still principles and rules which are made for the betterment for example you know even looking after as our guest even mentioned the, the prisoners of war hmm. um they have to be treated right to treat the right the delegates they from other countries they need to be holding respect uh, again women children old people they're not to be attacked only those you're fighting against yeah before going to our next guest i would like to say you know take any war Holy Prophet peace be upon him has fought with principles he never fought at night he was you know used to fight at the right time because even the buildings at, yeah. at fruit bearing trees you can't just chop them down exactly and this this look it doesn't want to destroy the you know society he taken care of every single thing and they said if you want to fight a man or you know the people who are against you should, they should be fight each other until you know the peace has been restored and he was the and you know he used to advocate that peace should be there peace should be maintained there should not be any conflict let's go to our next uh, caller uh, abdul uh, khwaja who is with us uh, is an imam serving uh, you know in uh, ecuador he is a missionary of amdia muslim association i welcome him in the show assalamu alaikum peace be upon you thank you very much for joining us today wa alaikum assalam for uh, having me on the show um thank you for coming um um if we start off uh, could you please tell you know the prophet uh, muhammad peace be upon him is often cited as a paragon of virtue and wisdom could you share examples from his life on how he resolved conflicts among his followers and how can muslims today draw inspiration from uh, you know his methods when faced with the interpersonal or you know societal conflicts yeah that's a really good uh, a really good question all the prophet peace be upon him you know through the through the decades of history has been known for a champion as a champion of peace because he always promoted tolerance patience and uh because of the practice of the holy prophet the muslims who love him so much 
who want to be like him also practice these virtues in their own lives. And, uh, you know, for Muslims, it's very easy for the Holy Prophet to to tell them, okay, don't do this. The Quran says this. So just, just be better. It was really easy for him to explain to Muslims because they're already believers. They already believed in him. They already believed in the word of God. So among his followers, it was very easy. He would first, uh, to, for example, if he was ever to find a dispute among two Muslim believers, he would listen to both of their problems. This is something that some world leaders don't even do. Not in his, his, his time, nor in today's age, that who is really there to listen to the problems of the people? So that's one virtue that he really had. So he would really listen to the problem of both parties, and then he would try to resolve the issue, and he would try, he would use wisdom, and if possible, he would even try to make both parties pleased, to satisfy both parties. And uh, in the Holy Quran, it says that Muslims are brothers to one another. And uh, as uh, and as Muslims, we need to, we need to be God fearing. So the Holy Prophet really emphasized the the point of as Muslims, if we are God fearing, these little disputes shouldn't really separate us for too long. And for example, even Islam says that if if you're angry with anybody, okay, it's fine. You can be angry with them, but don't go more than three days without speaking to them. After three days, forget it. Resolve the issue. And in terms of the contemporary world, conflicts often arise from diverse sources. How can Muslims apply the Prophet's teachings on conflict resolution to modern challenges, uh, such as social, political, or cultural differences? Are there any specific guidelines from the Hadith or Quran that would offer insights to resolving these modern conflicts? I mean, emotions are, are part of society, and for good reason, you know. But uh, throughout the life of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, we see that he took various routes, very various options into resolving conflicts. To some, he would teach them to be patient. To others, he would teach them to forgive. He would emphasize on instilling brotherhood among the believers. Uh, even we see examples of how he chose to have dialogue with people. He chose to do diplomacy. Throughout his life, we see various uh, incidents of how he created treaties in where he himself would give up so many rights just to, you know, just to end the conflict. And there's something really important in today's day and age as well, that if, as Muslims, we want to, like, end a conflict, we should be able to give up something if we really want that solution. So, all in all, throughout the life of the Holy Prophet, he emphasized instilling fear of God among the Muslims. And when Muslims are God-fearing, and when they're fulfilling the rights that are owed to others, then that's the real solution to these worldly conflicts, these, mm. these, uh, these other issues. And as I mentioned before, Muslims are brothers. We need to be God-fearing. And when we are able to fulfill you know, just these two aspects of Islam, we can, we can really create a better society, better you know, system of politics, we can improve the culture around us. Thank you very much. Um, and that's all we're going to have time for today. Now we're going to head, of course, as Usman, uh, towards the end. Uh, could you please uh, tell or you know, thank our uh, producers as well? Yeah, so the producers, Noor Mubarak, Hania Mubarak, Jamila Bryant and Zainab Fatima and also all the technical team. 
Yeah, definitely working behind the scenes, Akiv Ahmed. Now uh, is the end of today's show. Uh, we have discussed the topic war and peace. Islam again teaching, uh, you know, teaches our teaches just to have peace within the society. And, uh, you know, whenever the war is, uh, you know, had to take place, there should be a principles of, of those. And that's what the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, has taught us in every day and every, you know, in, in every war he fought. And he never went to fight someone. People came to him, to his city to fight. And there's so many incidents. I think I would like to request for our listeners to do visit our website, uh, Al-Islam, where they can read the seal of the Prophet and they can have a true picture what Islam says and what is the noble character of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and how he's lived his life. So on this, we will conclude uh, today's show. Please, uh, you know, we'll join you uh, in the next program. Until then, Assalamu alaikum.